Section 26 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lewis Heman, Louisville, Kentucky. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. The Mad Parliament, the beginning of England's House of Commons, A.D. 1258, by John Lingard. With the loss of Normandy under King John, the barons of Norman descent in England had become patriotic Englishmen. They forced their monarch to sign the Magna Carta, and thus laid the foundation of English constitutional liberty. John died in 1216, and was succeeded by his son Henry of Winchester, a minor in his eleventh year. The celebrated Hubert de Burgh, chief judiciar, soon became regent, and reigned comparatively without control, even after the young king attained his majority. But in 1232 Henry, being in need of money, imprisoned the regent and compelled him to forfeit the greater part of his estate. After de Burgh's fall, King Henry III became his own master, and was responsible for the measures of government, the wars with foreign powers, the disputes with the Pope and with the barons, during which the evolution of the English Parliament made important progress, chiefly through the efforts of Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester. One of the most important episodes of that evolution was the Mad Parliament, derisively so-called by the royal partisans, at which the provisions of Oxford long considered the rash innovations of an ambitious oligarchy were promulgated. Of this mad parliament, it has been said, quote, It would have been well for England if all parliaments had been equally sane. End quote. As to the opinion repeatedly emphasized in the following account, that de Montfort was false and ambitious, it is well to remind the reader that other historians have looked upon Earl Simon as a disinterested patriot of the highest type. It was Henry's misfortune to have inherited the antipathy of his father to the charter of Runnymede, and to consider his barons as enemies leagued in a conspiracy to deprive him of the legitimate prerogatives of the crown. He watched with jealousy all their proceedings, refused their advice, and confided in the fidelity of foreigners more than in the affection of his own subjects. Such conduct naturally alienated the minds of the nobles, who boldly asserted that the great offices of state were their right, and entered into associations for the support of their pretensions. Had the king possessed the immense revenues of his predecessors, he might perhaps have set their enmity at defiance. But during the wars between Stephen and Maud, and afterward between John and his barons, the royal domains had been considerably diminished and the occasional extravagance of Henry, joined to his impolitic generosity to his favorites, repeatedly compelled him to throw himself on the voluntary benevolence of the nation. Year after year the king petitioned for a subsidy, and each petition was met with a contemptuous refusal. If the barons at last relented, it was always on conditions most painful to his feelings. They obliged him to acknowledge his former misconduct, to confirm anew the two charters, and to promise the immediate dismissal of the foreigners. But Henry looked only to the present moment. No sooner were his coffers replenished than he forgot his promises and laughed at their credulity. 
Distress again forced him to solicit relief, and offer the same conditions. Unwilling to be duped a second time, the barons required his oath. He swore, and then violated his oath with as much indifference as he had violated his promise. His next applications were treated with scorn, but he softened their opposition by offering to submit to excommunication if he should fail to observe his engagements. In the Great Hall of Westminster, the king, barons, and prelates assembled. The sentence was pronounced by the bishops with the usual solemnity, and Henry, placing his hand on his breast, added, quote, So help me God, I will observe these charters, as I am a Christian, a knight, and a king crowned and anointed. End quote. The aid was granted, and the king reverted to his former habits. It was not, however, that he was by inclination a vicious man. He had received strong religious impressions. Though fond of parade, he cautiously avoided every scandalous excess, and his charity to the poor and attention to the public worship were deservedly admired. But his judgment was weak. He had never emancipated his mind from the tutelage in which he had been held in his youth, and easily suffered himself to be persuaded by his favorites that his promises were not to be kept, because they had been compulsory and extorted from him in opposition to the just claims of his crown. On the fall of Hubert de Burgh, the king had given his confidence to his former tutor, Peter the Pointevin, Bishop of Winchester that the removal of the minister would be followed by the dismissal of the other officers of government, and that the favorite would employ the opportunity to raise and enrich his relatives and friends, is not improbable. But it is difficult to believe, on the unsupported assertion of a censorious chronicler, that Peter could be such an enemy to his own interest as to prevail on the king to expel all Englishmen from the court, and confide to Poitevins and Bretons the guard of his person, the receipt of his revenue, the administration of justice, the custody of all the royal castles, the wardship of all the young nobility, and the marriages of the principal heiresses. But the ascendancy of the foreigners, however great it might be, was not of very long duration. The barons refused to obey the royal summons to come to the council. The Earl Marshal unfurled the standard of rebellion in Wales, and the clergy joined with the laity in censuring the measures of government. Edmund, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, attended by several other prelates, waited on Henry. He reminded the king that his father, by pursuing similar counsels, had nearly forfeited the crown, assured him that the English would never submit to be trampled upon by strangers in their own country, and had declared that he should conceive it his duty to excommunicate every individual, whoever he might be, that should oppose the reform of the government and the welfare of the nation. Henry was alarmed, and promised to give him an answer in a few weeks. A parliament of the barons was called, and Edmund renewed his remonstrance. The Poitevins were instantly dismissed, the insurgents restored to favor, and ministers appointed who possessed the confidence of the nation. At the age of twenty-nine, the king had married Eleanor, the daughter of Raymond, Count of Provence. The ceremony of her coronation, the offices of the barons, the order of the banquet, and the rejoicings of the people are minutely described by the historian, who, in the warmth of his admiration, declares that the whole world could not produce a more glorious and ravishing spectacle. Eleanor had been accompanied to England by her uncle William, bishop-elect of Valence, who soon became the king's favorite, was admitted into the council, 
and assumed the ascendancy in the administration. The barons took the first opportunity to remonstrate, but Henry mollified their anger by adding three of their number to the council, and, that he might be the more secure from their machinations, obtained from the Pope a legate to reside near his person. This was the Cardinal Otho, who employed his influence to reconcile Henry with the most discontented of the barons. By his advice, William returned to the continent. He died in Italy, but the king, mindful of his interests, had previously procured his election to the see of Winchester, vacant by the death of Peter de Roche. The next favorites were two other uncles of the queen, Peter de Savoy, to whom Henry gave the honor of Richmond, and Boniface de Savoy, who, at the death of Edmund, was chosen Archbishop of Canterbury. The natives renewed their complaints and waited with impatience for the return of Richard, the king's brother, from Palestine. But that prince was induced to espouse the cause of the foreigners, and to marry Sancia, another of the daughters of Raymond. But now Isabella, the queen mother, dissatisfied that the family of Provence should monopolize the royal favor, sent over her children by her second husband, the Count de la Marche, to make their fortunes in England. Alice, her daughter, was married to the young Earl of Warren. Guy, the eldest son, received some valuable presents and returned to France. William de Valence, with the order of knighthood, obtained an annuity and the honor of Hertford, and Amar was sent to Oxford, preferred to several benefices, and at last made Bishop of Winchester. Associations were formed to redress the grievances of the nation. Under the decent pretext of preventing the misapplication of the revenue, a demand was repeatedly made that the appointment of the officers of state should be vested in the great council, and at length the constitution was entirely overturned by the bold ambition of Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester. Simon was the younger of the two sons of the Count de Montfort, a name celebrated in the annals of religious warfare. By the resignation of Amori, his brother, the constable of France, he had succeeded to the estates of his mother Amicia, the elder of the two sisters and co-heiresses of the late Earl of Leicester. His subsequent marriage with Eleanor, the king's sister, had brought within his view the prospect of a crown, and his marked opposition to the extortions of the king and the pontiffs had secured to him, though a foreigner, the affection of the nobility, the clergy, and the people. Policy required that the king should not provoke nor should oppress so formidable a subject, but Henry did neither. He on some occasions employed the earl in offices of trust and importance, on others, by a succession of petty affronts, irritated instead of subduing his spirit. Among the inhabitants of Guienne, there were many whose wavering fidelity proved a subject of constant solicitude and Simon had been appointed by Patton governor of the province for five years, with the hope that his activity and resolution would crush the disaffected and secure the allegiance of the natives. They were to the earl years of continual exertion. His conduct necessarily begot enemies, and he was repeatedly accused to the king of peculation, tyranny, and cruelty. How far the charges were true, it is impossible to determine, but his accusers were the Archbishop of Bordeaux and the chief of the Gascon nobility, who declared that, unless justice were done to their complaints, their countrymen would seek the protection of a different sovereign. When Simon appeared before his peers, he was accompanied by Richard, the king's brother, and the earls of Gloucester and Hereford, who had engaged to screen him from the royal resentment. 
and the king, perceiving that he could not procure the condemnation of the accused, vented his passion in intemperate language. In the course of the altercation, the word traitor inadvertently fell from his lips. Traitor, exclaimed the earl, if you were not a king, you should repent of that insult. I shall never repent of anything so much, replied Henry, as that I allowed you to grow and fatten within my dominions. By the interposition of their common friends, they were parted. Henry conferred the duchy and the government of Guienne on his son Edward, but the earl returned to the province, nor would he yield up his patent without a considerable sum as a compensation for the remaining years of the grant. Fearing the king's enmity, he retired into France, and was afterward reconciled to him through the mediation of the Bishop of Lincoln. Though Richard had frequently joined the barons in opposing his brother, he could never be induced to invade the just rights of the crown. He was as much distinguished by his economy as Henry was by his profusion, and the care with which he husbanded his income gave him the reputation of being the most opulent prince of Europe. Yet he allowed himself to be dazzled with the splendor of royalty, and incautiously sacrificed his fortune to his ambition. In the beginning of the year 1256, the archbishops of Cologne and Mainz, with the elector Palatine, chose him at Frankfurt king of the Romans. And a few weeks later, the archbishop of Triers, the king of Bohemia, the duke of Saxony, and the marquis of Brandenburg, the other four electors, gave their suffrages in favor of Alfonso, king of Castile. It was, however, in an evil hour for Henry that Richard departed for Germany. The discontented barons, no longer awed by his presence, associated to reform the state under the guidance of the Earl of Leicester, High Steward, the Earl of Hereford, High Constable, the Earl Marshal, and the Earl of Gloucester. The circumstances of the times were favorable to their views. An unproductive harvest had been followed by a general scarcity, and the people were willing to attribute their misery not to the inclemency of the seasons, but to the incapacity of their governors. Henry called a great council at Westminster, and on the third day the barons assembled in the hall in complete armor. When the king entered, they put aside their swords. But Henry, alarmed at their unusual appearance, exclaimed, Am I then your prisoner? No, sire, replied Roger by God, but by your partiality to foreigners and your own prodigality, the realm is involved in misery. Wherefore, we demand that the powers of government be delegated to a committee of barons and prelates, who may correct abuses and enact salutary laws. Some altercation ensued, and high words passed between the Earl of Leicester and William de Valence, one of the king's brothers. Henry, however, found it necessary to submit, and it was finally agreed that he should solicit the Pope to send a legate to England and modify the terms on which he had accepted the kingdom of Sicily that he should give a commission to reform the state to twenty-four prelates and barons, of whom one half had already been selected from his council. The other half should be named by the barons themselves in a parliament to be held at Oxford, and that, if he faithfully observed these conditions, measures should be taken to pay his debts and to prosecute the claim of Edmund to the crown of the two Sicilies. At the appointed day, the great council, distinguished in our annals by the appellation of the Mad Parliament, assembled at Oxford. The barons, to intimidate their opponents, were attended by their military tenants, and took an oath to stand faithfully by each other, and to treat as, quote, a mortal enemy, end quote, 
every man who should abandon their cause. The Committee of Reform was appointed. Among the twelve selected by Henry were his nephew, the son of Richard, two of his half-brothers, and the great officers of state. The leaders of the faction were included in the twelve named by the barons. Every member was sworn to reform the state of the realm to the honor of God, the service of the king, and the benefit of the people, and to allow no consideration, quote, neither of gift nor promise, profit nor loss, love nor hatred nor fear, end quote, to influence him in the discharge of his duty. Each twelve then selected two of their opponents, and to the four thus selected was entrusted the charge of appointing fifteen persons to form the council of state. Having obtained the royal permission, they proceeded to make the choice with apparent impartiality. Both parties furnished an equal number, and at their head was placed Boniface, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who, if he were connected with the court from his relationship to the Queen, was also known to lean to the popular faction through his jealousy of the superior influence of the King's half-brothers. In reality, however, these elections proved the declining influence of the crown, for while the chiefs of the reformers were named, Henry's principal friends, his nephew and his brothers, had been carefully excluded. In a short time, the triumph of Leicester was complete. The justiciary, the chancellor, the treasurers, all the sheriffs, and the governors of the principal castles belonging to the king, twenty in number, were removed, and their places were supplied by the chiefs of the reformers, or the most devoted of their adherents. The new justiciary took an oath to administer justice to all persons according to the ordinances of the committee. The chancellor not to put the great seal to any writ which had not the approbation of the king and the privy council, nor to any grant without the consent of the great council, nor to any instrument whatever which was not in conformity with the regulations of the committee. The governors of the castles to keep them faithfully for the use of the king, and to restore them to him or his heirs, and no others, on the receipt of an order from the council, and at the expiration of twelve years to surrender them loyally on the demand of the king. Having thus secured to themselves the sovereign authority, and divested Henry of the power of resistance, the committee began the work of reform by ordaining, one, that four knights should be chosen by the freeholders of each county to ascertain and lay before the Parliament the trespasses, excesses, and injuries committed within the county under the royal administration. 2. That a new high sheriff should be annually appointed for each county by the votes of the freeholders. 3. That all sheriffs and the treasurer, chancellor, and judiciary should annually give in their accounts. 4 and that parliaments should meet thrice in the year, in the beginning of the months of February, June, and October. They were, however, careful that these assemblies should consist entirely of their own partisans. Under the pretext of exonerating the other members from the trouble and expense of such frequent journeys, twelve persons were appointed as representatives of the commonalty, that is, the whole body of earls, barons, and tenants of the crown and it was enacted that whatever these twelve should determine, in conjunction with the Council of State, should be considered as the act of the whole body. These innovations did not, however, pass without opposition. Henry, the son of the King of the Romans, Amar, Guy, and William, half-brothers to the King, and the Earl of Warren, members of the committee, 
though they were unable to prevent, considerably retarded the measures of the reformers, and nourished in the friends of the monarch a spirit of resistance which might ultimately prove fatal to the projects of Leicester and his associates. It was resolved to silence them by intimidation. They were required to swear obedience to the ordinances of the majority of the members. Proposals were made to resume all grants of the crown from which the three brothers derived their support, and several charges of extortion and trespass were made in the king's courts not only against them, but also against the fourth brother, Geoffrey de Valence. Fearing for their liberty or lives, they all retired secretly from Oxford and fled to Wolvesham, a castle belonging to Amar as bishop-elect of Winchester. They were pursued and surrounded by the barons. Their offer to take the oath of submission was now refused, and of the conditions proposed to them, the four brothers accepted as the most eligible to leave the kingdom, taking with them six thousand marks, and trusting the remainder of their treasures and the rents of their lands to the honor of their adversaries. Their departure broke the spirit of the dissidents. John de Warren and Prince Henry successively took the oath. Even Edward, the king's eldest son, reluctantly followed their example, and was compelled to recall the grants which he had made to his uncles of revenues and Guienne, and to admit of four reformers as his counsel for the administration of that duchy. To secure their triumph, a royal order was published that all the lieges should swear to observe the ordinances of the council and a letter was written to the Pope in the name of the Parliament, complaining of the King's brothers, soliciting the deposition of the Bishop of Winchester, and requesting the aid of a legate to cooperate with them in the important task of reforming the state of the kingdom. In a short time, Leicester was alarmed by the approach of a dangerous visitor, Richard, King of the Romans. That prince had squandered away an immense mass of treasure in Germany, and was returning to replenish his coffers by raising money on his English estates. At St. Omer, to his surprise, he received a prohibition to land before he had taken an oath to observe the provisions of reform, and not to bring the king's brothers in his suite. His pride deemed the message an insult, but his necessities required the prosecution of his journey, and he gave a reluctant promise to comply as soon as he should receive the king's permission. At Canterbury, Henry signified his commands, and Richard took the oath. Henry had been for two years the mere shadow of a king. The acts of government, indeed, ran in his name. But the sovereign authority was exercised without control by the lords of the council. In obedience to the royal orders, when the king ventured to issue any orders, was severely punished as a crime against the safety of the state. But if he were a silent, he was not an inattentive observer of the passing events. The discontent of the people did not escape his notice, and he saw with pleasure the intestine dissensions which daily undermined the power of the faction. The earls of Leicester and Gloucester pursued opposite interests and formed two opposite parties. Leicester, unwilling to behold the ascendancy of his rival, retired into France, and Gloucester discovered an inclination to be reconciled to his sovereign. But to balance this advantage, Prince Edward, who had formerly displayed so much spirit in vindicating the rights of the crown, joined the Earl of Leicester, their most dangerous enemy, 
and this unexpected connection awakened in the king's mind the suspicion of a design to depose him and place his son on the throne in these dispositions of enmity jealousy and distrust the barons assembled in london to meet henry in parliament but each member was attended by a military guard his lodgings were fortified to prevent a surprise the apprehension of hostilities confined the citizens within their houses and the concerns of trade with the usual intercourse of society were totally suspended after many attempts the good offices of the king of the romans effected a specious but treacherous pacification and the different leaders left the parliament friends in open show but with the same feelings of animosity rankling in their breasts and with the same projects for their own aggrandizement and the depression of their opponents at length henry persuaded himself that the time had arrived when he might resume his authority he unexpectedly entered the council and in a tone of dignity reproached the members with their affected delays and their breach of trust they had been established to reform the state improve the revenue and discharge his debts but they had neglected these objects and had labored only to enrich themselves and to perpetuate their own power he should therefore no longer consider them as his counsel but employ such other remedies as he thought proper he immediately repaired to the tower which had lately been fortified seized on the treasure in the mint ordered the gates of london to be closed compelled all the citizens above twelve years of age to swear fealty in their respective wardmotes and by proclamation commanded the knights of the several counties to attend the next parliament in arms the barons immediately assembled their retainers and marched to the neighborhood of the capital but each party diffident of its strength betrayed an unwillingness to begin hostilities and it was unanimously agreed to postpone the discussion of their differences till the return of prince edward who was in france displaying his prowess at a tournament he returned in haste and to the astonishment of all who were not in the secret embraced the interests of the barons henry however persevered in his resolution by repeated desertions the party of his enemies had been reduced to the two earls of leicester and gloucester the grand justiciary the bishop of worcester and hugh de montfort whose principal dependence was on the oath which the king and the nation had taken to observe the provisions of oxford to this argument it was replied that the same authority which enacted the law was competent to repeal it and that an oath which should deprive the parliament of such right was in its own nature unjust and consequently invalid for greater security however the king applied to pope alexander who by several bulls released both him and the nation from their oaths on the principle that the provisions of oxford were injurious to the state and therefore incompatible with their previous obligations these bulls henry published appointed a new justiciary and chancellor removed the officers of his household revoked to himself the custody of the royal castles named new sheriffs in the counties and by proclamation announced that he had resumed the exercise of the royal authority this was followed by another proclamation to refute the false reports circulated by the barons end of section twenty six